As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> Most of you listening are, I imagine, old enough to have heard an obscene joke or two, most likely involving acts of a sexual nature or bodily functions. Some of you might enjoy telling them and hearing them. I pass no judgment, for you are no different to your forebears. 500 years ago, obscene jokes were also a feature of society. And while we might expect to find bawdy humour in early modern plays and satires, today's guest has proof that such jokes were part and parcel of everyday life. Examining the diaries of a man called Johannes Rutina, kept between 1529 and 1539, Dr. Carla Roth has found many jokes and humorous anecdotes, which Johannes noted as part of his running commentary of news, rumors, gossip, conversations, and memories. Johannes's notebook therefore gives us an amazing insight into both the jokes that were told and the context in which they were passed on. So today we're going to learn what constituted an early modern joke, what made a joke funny, who told them and when, and what purpose humour served. Dr Roth is a researcher and lecturer. Her research focuses on the cultural and social history of early modern Switzerland, and her first monograph, The Talk of the Town, Information and Community in 16th Century Switzerland, was published in 2022 by Oxford University Press. I suspect you've already worked this out, but I do want to make it clear that today's podcast will contain references to early modern jokes about bodily functions and about sexual acts, including rape. If you might find those offensive, please skip to another episode now. For those still listening who want to understand why something that we might not find funny at all was funny in the 16th century, let's begin. Dr. Roth, thank you so much for coming on Not Just the Tudors and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to talk about this because it feels like what we find funny varies from century to century. And so this is an amazing opportunity to think about humour in a past society. So let's talk a bit, first of all, about the person whose notebooks have given you the opportunity to consider early modern humour and particularly obscene humour, Johannes Rutina. What can you tell us about him and how did you come across his diaries? Yes, Johannes Rutina is quite an interesting character. We actually know very little about him because he talks about everybody else, but very little about himself, unfortunately. So he was born in 1501 in St. Gallen, which is a town on the edge of the Swiss Confederacy. 
It's located close to the border of today's Switzerland with Germany and Austria. And he was born into a family of linen merchants. The linen trade was really important for St. Gallen at the time because the town produced very high quality linen and that was then exported to many parts of Europe, including Nuremberg, Krakow, Lyon, Spain and Italy. And he goes to university in Basel because his family is doing quite well in the linen trade. They get to set him off and he returns to his hometown St. Gallen just about the time when the Reformation is starting to spread and just to give you a sense of the time that he's starting to write his notebooks, which is why we have access to this kind of humour, this is a time in which the Reformation is starting to take hold in his hometown and a lot of people are starting to take notes of their times to keep a record of what they are living through, including some of his closest friends. So this is the context in which he starts taking notes on his conversations. So do we have Calvinism to thank for the documentation of dirty jokes. <laughs> it's not Calvinism at this point yet, it's Zwinglianism, but in a sense, perhaps yes, because the notes that he takes are probably in part inspired by the transformations that his hometown is going through. So we know that about nine people at least are starting to write about their times as he is doing the same thing in St. Gallen in the 1520s and 1530s. And actually six of these records survive to this day. So that's quite fortunate for historians of early modern St. Gallen. And we know that in his circle of friends, so Johannes Kessler, who is very important at bringing the Reformation to St. Gallen, and Joachim Badianus, who's the mayor, who also counts as the reformer of St. Gallen, they both keep their own records, and they discuss why they keep these records. And one of the reasons they do this is because they want to keep a record of all of those wondrous events that are taking place as the Reformation is starting to take hold within their hometown. And so Rudin is part of this group, but his project is very different. First of all, because what they are doing is something that we know very well. So Johannes Kessler is writing a chronicle. Janus is writing a day-on-day -day account of what is happening in his town. Rutina is taking notes of his conversations. And so there's quite a lot of thematic breadth in what he's recording. He doesn't just focus on... God's miraculous deeds that are happening in St. Gallen this time, but he's recording gossip and jokes, and he's writing about petty quarrels in his neighbourhood, and at the same time he's also writing about the big events of his time. He finds value in a lot of different kinds of information, and he also values a lot of different kinds of informants, and that's what makes his notebooks so valuable. He doesn't just write down what he finds important, what he hears and he considers important. He also writes down the names of the people who tell him. So we also get a sense of who is making jokes, who is talking about their neighbours, who is sharing news. And we can trace his information network and we see that it includes a wide variety of people within St. Gallen from the local executioner and the midwife and the washerwoman all the way up to the mayor of the city. Do you feel that Johannes's notebook is unique or special for studying early modern humour? Does it contain something different to the sorts of things that we've known about jokes and how humour has traditionally been studied? Yes, I think what's quite significant about this particular source is that because he writes down where he gets his information from, we get a sense of who is telling the jokes. And that's something that's usually quite difficult to reconstruct, because when we look at early modern humour, our main sources are 
literary sources. And then we also get humour in pamphlets, often very cruel and scathing humour. I'm thinking in particular of the Protestant pamphlets of the 1520s, making fun of the Catholics. Then one of the other important sources are joke books. So there's quite a few collections of printed joke books in the Italian and in the German context. And often they come from a humanist context. We've got, for instance, Heinrich Bebel, who's a humanist in Germany. And we've got Johannes Pauli, who's a priest, who's also publishing a very famous joke collection called Schimpf und Ernst. And some of these are based on earlier Italian examples. But what's important about all of these sources is that they can tell us about the stock figures of humour and they can tell us something about the themes of early modern humour, but they tell us very little about the social context in which these jokes are made. And also, because they're printed, they go through a bit of self-censorship, perhaps, and often there's a moral lesson that is linked to them. So they're saying, we give you these jokes, but we've actually eliminated the most serious ones. And also we attach a moral message to them. So actually you need to learn something from these jokes. And that's something that is not present to the same extent in the jokes that Rutina is recording, because there you can actually see these are jokes that are played out in real social situations. They often are based on some of these printed jokes as well. So sometimes we can trace jokes that are made in St. Gaal in oral contexts to some of these printed collections, but they are changed quite significantly in the process. And so Rutina gives us a window onto a less polished part of early modern humour. And I think that gives us the answer to those who might say, gosh, this is niche, you're looking at obscene humour and early modern society but actually this is about the nature of early modern society itself isn't it it really is i think humor is so interesting because it gives us a view of past cultures so when we look at early modern humor we can learn quite a lot about common stereotypes and prejudices also the limits of what can be said at a certain time the limits of what can be made fun of the rules by which some of these conversations function. And then at the same time, I think they can tell us a lot about these social situations in which people make and enjoy humour of any kind, including sexual humour as well. And for me, it was also quite a significant subject of study because I was primarily interested in the way information travels in a time. And humour is actually a really good way of looking at that because it's meant to be shared so when you tell a joke and it's then repeated and it's written down and it's printed and then the print is used again and you have several of these instances where the same joke is made, you can see not only how it travels across Europe, perhaps, but also how it changes in the process and what people actually find funny about it. Because when they make changes to the joke, it's usually to improve the joke and not to make it worse. So you get a sense of what they actually consider to be the most important aspect of a joke. That's so interesting. I suppose we probably shouldn't go any further without understanding a bit more about what constituted obscene humour in the early modern period. So perhaps you could tell us a joke or describe a joke to us and set out typical themes of 16th century wit. I might start with a joke that isn't quite as crude. We can ease into early modern humour, if you will. This is an anecdote from pre-Reformation St. Gallen. 
a group of priests is playing a game of dice. These are all men that actually exist in St. Gallen at the time, so these aren't fictional characters. And the mayor of St. Gallen, Badianus, is also present as they are playing this game. And there's an elderly priest, he's called Vekali, and he can't see very well, so every time he rolls the dice he has to get up and look at the dice from up close because he can't see them otherwise. And a younger priest, Burgawa and Madianus, are conspiring to play a practical joke on this priest. So Burgawa places an egg underneath Vekali's bum, just as he's getting up again to look at the dice. And when he sits down, he notices the egg and starts laughing. And there's a significant line at the end of this joke, which I really puzzled over, which says, Vekali noticed the joke and laughed because he was only wearing a shirt and sleeves. And you get the joke right away. It's a practical joke. You can imagine the priest sitting down on the egg, getting smashed and soiling him. So that element of the joke is quite understandable. But I didn't really understand what this white shirt was all about and why it was so significant to the joke. And so I started to look at some of the symbolism of eggs at the time. And I discovered quite a popular character in both visual and verbal humour, which is a man sitting on eggs or actually producing eggs. And this is a character that is usually associated with being effeminate because he's sitting on these eggs like a hen would. And I got the impression that actually this joke about the priest who's getting up and sitting down and sitting on the egg with his white shirt is a reference to this character. And then when you look at the egg, I think Patricia Simon's book on the sex of men in pre-modern Europe is really eye-opening when it comes to the sexual connotations of foodstuffs. And one of the things that is symbolized by the egg is the male testicles. And obviously, when you look at the joke again, with that in mind, it takes on quite a different meaning. So we've got an elderly man who's crushing this egg underneath his bum, and he's a Catholic cleric. So he's pledged to celibacy, he's crushing his own eggs, basically, as he sits down and wasting the semen spilled by that action. So that's the image, I think, that this joke is supposed to transmit. That's a wonderful interpretation and analysis, and also amusing that apparently that's where we're starting with the not obscene <laughs> end of the story. <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> so you write about the fact that 16th century humour often ties together physicality, like sex and feces, for example, the scatological and the sexual together, and that we might think that these things together in a joke are funny because they were taboo, so the joke is transgressing social norms. But actually, you suggest there's a very rational explanation for this connection in the early modern period. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yes, that's something that I found quite interesting, that things that we would normally put together, sex and feces, actually are very closely linked in these jokes. And actually, Sarah Tulalen is a historian who also writes about sex and humour in her book on early modern pornography. And she actually found that because there's a medical connection between these different fluids in the body, so between semen and feces and urine as well, these jokes actually make a connection between these different types of fluids. And the jokes are reflecting the medical knowledge of the time. So if you've got a system in which 
the healthy body depends on a balance of fluids and the expulsion of superfluous fluids, then jokes about breaking wind or ejaculation or about feces are actually all about this medical knowledge as well. And the connection between these two elements is therefore not taboo. It's something that is very much part of a medical and learned discourse that they're referring to. So if it's not a taboo that is being found funny, what is being found funny? One of the things that I found quite significant is that it's often failing male bodies that are becoming the subject of ridicule. So what these jokes make fun of are men who don't fulfill the requirements that early modern society places on them. Within this medical system, men are supposedly hotter and drier than women. And as they get older, they develop some of those traditionally female characteristics, so they become wetter and colder. And some of these jokes are playing on that by making fun of them for acquiring certain female characteristics and also for losing control of their bodies and for both feces and urine and other fluids flowing from their bodies without them being able to control them. And at the same time, they're losing control of potency. And I think the reason why all the men are such a popular target in these jokes is because many of these jokes are made in a context where younger men are trying to establish a place for themselves. They are really competitive situations in which they try to display their masculinity, but also their ability to understand medical discourse and their sexual prowess is something that they also try to stress. And because this is the context in which many of these jokes take place, one of the most popular targets is this older man who has lost some of those masculine features. So fascinating. So again, it shows how hard patriarchy is on men in this period, as well as on women, that these notions of what a man should be are yardsticks by which all men and those who are considered to be failing men are measured, and therefore makes them the butt of jokes, even though you might have thought that it would be directed elsewhere. And Maybe we'll come to thinking about women as the butt of jokes in a second. But also, I'm struck by the fact that in cases I've looked at where people are accusing other people of doing things, if you accuse someone else of not being respectable, you claim respectability yourself. And so in accusing an older man of not being potent, you're claiming potency, aren't you? It's a way of asserting your own ability to fulfil the demanding stereotype. Absolutely. I think that's definitely correct. I think that's why some of these jokes are so popular in these circles. And what about women? Do women feature in the jokes? And is the purpose of humour to demean them as well? Or could we imagine that the purpose of humour is not just about demeaning people? (laughs) First of all, yes, I think the purpose of humour is not just to be demeaning people. And I think some of the ways in which sociological and psychological humour theories of the 20th century have framed a perception of these jokes has also led to that idea that whenever you make a joke, you exclude certain people and you draw a line between us and them, basically. And I don't think that's necessarily always the case. But to come back to your question about women, what I found interesting about the jokes that Rutina recorded is that obviously these are also very misogynist, but 
First of all, women are engaging in this type of humor as well. And secondly, the fictional women that come up in these jokes, they often manage to turn the joke around. So often the last laugh is on the men and not on the women. And the women make very witty remarks that really manage to turn a joke around. So this is one of those jokes that when you first read it, you think it's, from a modern perspective, it's absolutely appalling because it's about rape. This is actually a joke that exists in many different variations. It's quite popular because it plays on the idea that women don't really know what the sexual act is. They lack sexual knowledge. And so there's this joke about a woman who has intercourse for the first time, often by being raped, and she doesn't know what the semen is. And so she asks, what is this? And the man gives her a reply. This is the basic form of the joke, but then there are several variations. And one is about a nun who wants to confess to a priest, and he doesn't have time, so he says, well, I'll let you confess later. And by the time he returns to her, she's already confessed to herself. So he decides that he has to punish her because she wasn't allowed to confess to herself. And he punishes her with rape. And when she asks him about the semen, he says that this is her absolution. Obviously, very cruel humour where the thing that is given by this priest to the nun, namely semen and absolution, is parallel to comic effect. So obviously, within a Protestant context, that joke functions really well because it makes fun both of the Catholic sacraments and the dire state of these sacraments and of the nun who is also disobeying the rules that they have imposed on themselves. But then the nun actually turns the joke around and she says, if this is my absolution, I wish I had chat in church because how much more would have been imposed on me then? So she's making play on the word imponere in Latin, which has several different meanings. But basically what she's saying is, first of all, she's commenting on the punishment that is imposed on her. So imponere also means to be something is imposed on somebody. But then it also means to put inside. So she's also commenting on the penis that was put inside her and on the person that was on top of her, because that's also another meaning of imponere. So she's saying that the priest has failed her both as priest and lover because he hasn't fulfilled her sexual needs, but he's also failed her in a spiritual understanding. So the joke comes from the fact that there's an attempt by him at cruelty, and of course if we've established the religious context, but she is the one who is able to say in the end that you're the letdown. It's not my ignorance, it's you who has the disappointment. Also, I suppose there's laughing at the idea that a nun might know. She might have a comparative frame of reference to say whether a man was impressively well-endowed or not. And that is also a cause for merriment. Yes, I think a lot of these jokes that play on sexual activities between priests and nuns play on the idea that actually this is something that they know a lot about, even if they're not supposed to. So a lot of these jokes are about nuns and priests also voluntarily sleeping with one another. So I think that's definitely an element of Protestant humour in particular that really has this idea that the convents are places where a lot of illicit relationships are happening. On American History Hit, we ride the wild Oregon Trail, delve deep beneath Central Park, and fight the Forgotten War of 1812. Join me, Don Wildman, 
and my expert guests as we uncover the stories that have shaped America in all its endless complexity. We'll follow John Wilkes Booth as he shoots President Lincoln and goes on the run. And we'll walk under the stars with Harriet Tubman as she finds her way to freedom. Follow America's story from the first Native people to footprints on the moon. On American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, with new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini, to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds, and the Paranormal, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Now, you said that in Johannes's notebook, he says who is saying things. So do we have evidence of jokes only being shared between men? Or do we have evidence from him of women telling rude jokes? Or, in fact, religious folk like nuns and priests? It's very difficult to find women actually engaging in that kind of humour, but we have some evidence from his notebooks. One example is a midwife called Anna Bush, who is also employed by Rutina while his wife is in childbed and takes care of his newborn and his child and his wife. And she makes some sexual jokes in his presence and he records them. They're not quite as explicit, perhaps, as some of the other jokes. But in any case, it's significant, I think, that a woman of a lower standing than he is making such jokes in his presence. And then there are also women in St. Gallen that are set to make jokes. We only get to them indirectly because men are telling the jokes that they supposedly made, including one that is quite sexually explicit and offensive, made by a maid called Elizabeth, who apparently jokes about her master's father's impotence while she's bathing him. He's already quite old and she's touching his 
penis with a little finger, so the joke goes, and says, ah, oh, impotent. And there's also, there's a pun in there because Rutina writes all this in Latin. So again, there's a pun on erectus, which means to stand up, but also to be erect. And so this man is held up by two women as he's standing in this cupboard top and she's making a play on him not being able to get an erect penis at the same time. So there are these instances where we see women allegedly or actually making jokes, but it's not the majority of the jokes in Rutina's collection. And that raises all sorts of interesting questions about translation as well. Yes. If Rutina is writing this all down in Latin, and clearly that's not what people are speaking to each other in their local vernacular, then we need to think about where the joke is, really, because so much of a joke is in that wordplay, isn't it? And those overlapping meanings, which you might not have in French or German or the dialect that they're speaking. Exactly. Jokes are notoriously difficult to translate. And I noticed firsthand when I was trying to translate these jokes into English and from possibly a German original that was translated into Latin and then into English, that was quite a hard thing to do. But I think a lot of these jokes actually only work in Latin. And that's also significant because it tells us something about the audience of these jokes. Joking, even quite sexual jokes, they are a humanist activity as well. So we tend to think of sexual humour and scatological humour as being lowly, as being something that is done by people of lower strata of society, and it's not a very intellectual thing, according to us. But when you actually look at these joke collections, they are humanist joke collections, and Making such jokes is also a form of linguistic artistry. So we get a sense that making a pun is an intellectual activity. It's something pleasurable and something that the intellectual elite is also interested in and engaging with. And by writing down these jokes in Latin, Rutina is also showing that he is proficient on a language, which really he isn't. <laughs> to be quite honest, a lot of the entries in his notebook suggest that his Latin wasn't very good. But if you can get the joke, you can inscribe yourself in that humanist culture nevertheless. Yes. So you've got to know that impore can be to put on or to impose on or to insert it or you know you've got to know all of those different meanings to make it work I suppose so do you have a sense that delivering a well-told joke conferred a positive status on the person telling it then that it actually said I'm intelligent and learned and it's not just seen as something baldy and conversely do we know what happened if someone told a bad joke or if they told a misplaced joke yes people who are able to make a good joke they are held in high esteem by Rutina because they're good company and they provide entertainment. And there's even a term, homo facetus, to describe somebody who's good at making jokes. And actually, making jokes has also been described as an entry ticket into these humanist groups because people were so appreciative of these jokes. And the other question is more difficult to answer. So what happens if somebody makes a joke that goes really wrong? There are some examples where you see that people didn't appreciate the joke in Odina's notebooks, but I think mostly he writes down successful jokes because those are the jokes that he can use again. So he doesn't say why he's writing all of this down. But one of the reasons I think he was keeping his notes is because he wanted to collect information for conversations 
So he had some information and some material that he then could use within his different social groups as well. And so it makes much more sense to write down a successful joke than one that failed miserably. So you mentioned earlier that some jokes did the rounds in early modern Switzerland, some got adapted as they were passed on and improved. What made a joke more popular? What made it stand the test of time? It helped if you had one of those really popular characters in them. For instance, all the men who failed at sexual activities or somebody whose body let them down. But then also, as these jokes were passed on, usually people inserted little bits of local knowledge in them so they would work better in the context in which they were told. So for instance, there's a joke about an older man who marries a young woman and he is worried that he will not be able to perform sexually during the wedding night. So he goes to an apothecary and asks for an aphrodisiac and depending on the variation of the joke, there's an accident, there's a mishap and he gets a laxative instead or the apothecary is actually playing a practical joke on this groom and gives him a laxative on purpose. But either way, the result is the same. Instead of sleeping with his wife, he soils the wedding bed. And that is basically the end of the joke. And so that joke actually goes around very far. So it comes up in printed joke collections and then Rutina records it twice. And the different versions suggest that what was changed about the joke as it was retold was the placing of the anecdote. So in each case, once the joke reached Rutina in St. Galm, and the anecdote is located in a town very close to St. Galm, so you get the sense of this actually happened, and it happened in a town very close by. And the next time he hears the joke, it's brought back from a merchant who just returned from Leipzig, and in this case, allegedly, the same anecdote happened in Wittenberg. So in each case, they tried to turn a joke that was going around in the printed joke collection into a factual story to make it even funnier. It obviously makes something funny if you put people that you know into a joke. And so it draws very much on that local society. I was also really intrigued by the story about the egg and that idea that you need to have a certain amount of information to understand a joke. Is there another example that jumps to mind which has a similar context that you've had to kind of unpick to understand why it landed? Almost all the jokes that I looked at, I didn't get right away. Maybe I can tell a joke that I'm still not sure that I'm getting. So there's one joke that is really quite puzzling. You can tell from its narrative structure that it's a joke, but apart from that, I'm not quite sure what it's all about. I have a hunch and I'll tell you what it is in a second, but basically the joke goes as follows. The cats and dogs are starting to fight with one another and... So the dogs dispatch one of their kind to Rome to talk to the Pope, presumably. And this dog is then given a papal decree. And that papal decree is tied underneath the dog's tail. And significant there that, again, the Latin word for tail and penis is the same. So it's not quite clear what is meant by that. But in any case, that's where the papal decree is tied to. And the joke ends with the remark that this is why they sniff their behinds when they meet each other. It seems to me that the joke is trying to explain why dogs sniff each other's behinds when they meet. But there's also a different level to the joke 
that I think is significant because within the early modern period, cats are closely associated with the female sphere and the dogs are in the stroke clearly marked as male with the reference to their penises. There's a possibility, I think, that the joke is making fun of monks and nuns and that it's playing on the idea that because the dogs get a papal decree liberating them from interaction with the cats, so the women, they engage in much more sinful practices with one another. So they're sniffing each other's behinds. That, I think, is a reference to anal sex, to sodomy, which is one of those things where I think there's really a taboo, <laughs> even within the sexual humour that is quite explicit in the period. When there are jokes that are touching on that taboo, it's usually something that's hidden under several layers of symbolism. And in this case, I think that might be the case. But it's very difficult to get to a true sense of this particular joke. I wondered, when you said it, whether it referred to the osculum infame, the sort of kiss on the anus that witches did. That's the first thing that's sprang to mind ah, interesting. for me. Yeah, But it precisely points us to the fact that Jokes don't translate. They don't easily translate between different languages and they don't easily translate between different social contexts or historical periods. And of course, a joke isn't funny if you have to explain it. Are there any that you still think are funny that can somehow transcend all of that? Or does it depend so much on that kind of contextual information that would actually make it funny? I think some of these jokes grow on you. <laughs> I didn't think I thought any of them were funny when I first read them, but I think as you start to really engage with them and as you try and really think the way people in the early modern period thought about these jokes, you start to appreciate some of this humour in a different way. Maybe one of the things that I found really funny is that when I once taught a class on early modern humor and I started that class by just without any comment giving them an example of one of these jokes. And it was really interesting. There were a few people who laughed a little bit, but very uncomfortably. And nobody really enjoyed the joke as much as I think Rutina and his contemporaries would have. So I think it takes them getting used to that kind of humor. And I think so much of this is now tricky material. We've talked about jokes that have a rape at the centre of them, and we would feel deeply uncomfortable about laughing at that, understandably, for good reason. But it's interesting because what you're looking at gives us a sense about how people conversed. And you say in your book, Talk of the Town, that Rutina gives us a window into oral exchanges typically hidden from view. And I wonder whether the jokes and the humour that we've discussed can be set in a kind of wider context of all the oral exchanges that Rutina notes and how important they are in giving us a sense about sociability at the time and how different it was. Yes, I think that's a really good point. So the way humour fits into that larger question of oral communication is that I think it's linked to the communicative sphere in which all of these other parts of communication take place as well. So if you're in a context in which when you want to get information about what's going on in the world, you need to talk to your social circle because they are the ones that provide you primarily with information about what's going on. 
And humour is an entry ticket into those circles, and the same is true for gossip, then actually these things are very closely linked to one another. So humour isn't just about making fun of people or about providing entertainment. It's also a kind of currency that you can use to gain access to circles in which you then get access to other information as well. And at least that's what I'm arguing in my book. Because what's quite clearly visible is that the kind of information that we would consider important today, such as economic information or political news or religious information, that within the community sphere of St. Gunn is all mingled together with gossip, with jokes, with all those social interactions that take place on a daily basis. And it's very hard to disentangle these different topics from one another. So the last thing I wanted to ask you was, given that humour is just one dimension of the sociability that Regina is recording in the notebook, I wonder if you can tell me how else you have used his work, how else the ideas and the features of life that we see in an early modern town have been revealed by his work that we can read about in your work, Talk of the Town. One thing that I found quite striking about his notebooks overall is that he and also his contemporaries valued information that we wouldn't necessarily consider quite as important today. So they valued gossip and jokes as well as political and economic information. And that also meant that they valued a broad variety of different informants, including characters that are located on the lower level of society, at least according to the sense of the time. So through the notebooks, we get to access a lot of voices, obviously mediated through Rutina's notes, that we wouldn't normally hear from. That includes women, but also other marginalised groups, such as mercenaries and the public executioner. And a lot of the characters that normally we only find in court records, suddenly we see them in a different context and we see them as informants who are able to provide jokes and gossip and valuable information to somebody who is standing above them in the social hierarchy. And I think that's one of the ways in which Rudina's notebooks really show us a different side to early modern societies. Well, thank you very much for giving us a bit of an insight into the things that people found funny and why they found them funny and how they talked and how they communicated. It really reveals a little bit more of ordinary life at the time that we find so hard to access through other sources. So it's been a great insight. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. 
In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.